So we've been talking the last few weeks about respect and acknowledgement and being seen. About our desire to be seen, our desire to be acknowledged and appreciated and respected. About the pain that causes us when we don't receive it. About the impossibility of receiving it the way we genuinely want to, the totality of it. About the ways in which we can give that to ourselves and the way we can be seen by ourselves and seen by God. And about the fact that this takes the letting go of shame and the commitment to truth. If we want to really see those parts of ourselves and accept those parts of ourselves. But today I want to sort of take our discussion a step further. And rather than talking about the ways in which we can see and acknowledge and love and accept ourselves, I want to talk about letting go of the need to be seen kind of stepping out of the game entirely. It's kind of even more radical break with this seeking we have, with this need for being acknowledged. And when we can do it, even just for a moment, it's a feeling of complete liberation. It's not substituting something else. We don't have to sort of acknowledge ourselves in some way. But we just step outside We just get out of the way. It's not a cold or detached letting go, a kind of like, I don't care, you know, which is, of course, a lie, right? (laughs) Which is like, I don't care, but of course we really do care what people think. But it's actually a kind of surrender. It's kind of a warm, loving release into the universe. A letting go of that need, a letting go of that craving. really the deep meaning of anava, of humility, or of ayin, of nothingness. It's this letting go of the need to be seen, not in a kind of self-deprecating way of, oh, I'm nothing, I'm not important. Because we recognize the truth, which is, we're divine. But we just don't need it anymore. It's just sort of as simple as that. We just don't need it anymore. kind of terrifying, I think, when you really think about it. That ability to really, what would it be like to just stop caring whether others saw you or acknowledged you or appreciated you? What if it really didn't matter to you at all? It's terrifying because in some ways, in this emptying out, we're sort of letting go of those pieces which we think we need to stay safe or whole or understood or okay. Right? We think we need those things to be safe somehow. And we're just letting go of our safety net. We're totally letting go of it. But in that place, there's deep wisdom. It says in Masech Nidarim and in the Midrash, when a person makes himself like the desert, which is mufkar l'kol, tefker, it's available, it's unowned, it's completely open, then Torah is given as a gift. When you're empty, the Torah, the wisdom, the okayness, the security, it just comes as a gift. You don't have to do anything, you don't have to work for it. But it's totally scary. Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, said, 
If we begin to give up self-criticism, then we may feel like we're losing our occupation, as though someone were taking away our job. (laughs) We would have no further occupation if we were to surrender to everything. There would be nothing to hold on to. I think it's such a great quote because it's totally right. You know, there's some feeling of like, but what am I supposed to do if I'm not doing that, right? Isn't that what I'm supposed to be sort of be doing all the time? Telling myself I'm doing something wrong? How am I going to kind of like, in situations which feel a little bit unsteady and uncertain, usually it's the criticism, the critique, the lack of, that's what sort of fills it in and makes it feel safe in some way. But what if I just let go of that and I was just in this radical place of uncertainty? And it's terrifying and it's exhilarating. It's exhilarating. You know, like jumping off the side of a cliff. (laughs) It's, you know, it's the letting go of the hope that someone is going to give me that acceptance or that acknowledgement or that recognition or that respect. And even... Deeper than that, it's letting go of even wanting it or needing it because of let go of the hope. Because sort of ask ourselves an interesting question when my teachers asked me, which is, you know, who would I be if I wasn't seeking it? Who would I be? Let's just say, whatever the it is for you, right now I'm talking about recognition and respect and acknowledgement, but you can choose something else. What are the things that you're seeking? What if I just stop seeking it? Who would I be? What would I be like? What if I just realized I was never going to get it, ever? I'm never going to get it. And in that realizing, I realized that I didn't really need it. I didn't really need it. I would be okay without it. What would be left? It's an interesting question. Just ask yourself right now, like, what would be left? Whatever that thing is that you feel like you're seeking, you're craving, if you just stopped... Just stepped off the merry-go-round, you know, like stepped off the path. What would be there? What would be left? And what I responded, my teacher and me to asking that question was, I said, emptiness and total possibility. I would be free to explore and to play and develop. And it's interesting to me that play. Just automatically came out of my mouth. Like I'd be free to play in that space of not having to be on that treadmill anymore, of not having to seek that thing I think I need. There's tremendous freedom. There's so much possibility. There's so much joy. There's so much place to experiment and play and become something else and become something new and then become something new again, right? So we don't have to be tied to what we were, what we thought we had to be. I would be free to experiment and to take risks, I said. To let go of fear. And that place of letting go is just a wide open field. And it's a little scary because it's emptied of all the objects we normally have in it. Which are the objects we use to seek comfort and consolation. Right? It's emptied of all our normal strategies of escape and of hiding. All the ways we normally write take the teddy bear, we suck our thumb, whatever we do, right? (laughs) Things we do to make us somehow feel it's safe and it's going to be okay. But it's beautifully open and free. It's ragged and it's raw and it's scary and it's exhilarating. 
It's totally exhilarating. It's being at the peak of a mountain. And of course, even with that acknowledgement, there's part of me that is still in love with the sort of hope that somehow I could get all the recognition I really want from others. You know? But there's always that possibility of just sticking with the truth. The beautiful possibility of just sticking with the truth. The truth which is that I never will. And that I can give up the race. And it still feels scary, of course, to let go of that hope because part of me, part of us may feel like, who would I be if I didn't have that? Right? It's like, who would I be? All the anchors, all the places of my identity, all the places I know how to operate and be in the world would just kind of fall apart. It's like I would say, you know, I was trained as a child to seek approval. That's what I was trained to do, right? Like, you're supposed to do this, you're accomplished, you're supposed to seek approval, that's what you're supposed to do. You're told you're doing a good job, you know, whatever. And I even see it in, like, you know, totally funny ways, like with my daughter, you know, like, 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 oh, you didn't throw the food on the floor, good job, you know, like, we don't want her to throw the food on the floor, that's okay. But, you know, but, like, of course we're trying to do it with positive reinforcement, that's great. But I'm trained, right, trained to seek approval. And if I stopped trying to seek approval, it would just end the whole game. It would end the whole game. And there's some fear that I wouldn't know how to see myself. I wouldn't sort of know what the goal was or what game I was involved in. But if we, you know, if we, if we let go of it, then it's like the game doesn't even exist. We're outside the game. There are certain things which are only possible in the game. It's like I was just reading a philosophy of language uh, book for working on my dissertation. And one of the points he made about the way rules work, he said, you know, you can't score a touchdown if you're not playing football. Right? It's true. You just can't score a touchdown. I mean, it's not like you can do whatever you want. You can run. You can run into some area. But you can't actually score a touchdown if you're not playing football. Right? You have to, first of all, buy into the game. You have to buy into the game, the rules, the structure. Then you can do the things within the game. Right? And so there are certain ways that we're stuck in the game and we can start to challenge the ways we play the game. And that's really valuable. And that's part of the way of sort of like we don't feel accepted. We're going to bring the acceptance to ourselves, And that's beautiful and that's necessary. You know? And then there are ways we can sort of say, well, I don't believe in the game, you know? <laughs> I can't not be accepted because I'm not even playing the acceptance game. I'm not even part of it. So it's, it's not a possibility for me. It's like, can't score a touchdown if you're not playing football, mm-hmm. right? I'm not part of the game, so it's just, it's not there. <sighs> but it's hard to stand out of the game, to step out of the game. Because it feels very fragile. Feels like we won't know how to protect our sense of self-worth. We won't know how to protect our ego. Because the normal way we do it is by this process of sort of external validation. At least that's a normal process for many of us. If we're willing to do it, just for a moment, then we can feel the liberation of it. We can feel the freedom. It's like, I've told this story before. 
but it's so great. And every time I feel like I understand a little bit more deeply, which is the story Rambam tells in the Mishnah Torah of the Hasid who is trying to achieve equanimity. And he's traveling on the ship in the cheap seats below. And one of the rich folks up above looks at him with disdain and unzips his fly and urinates on him. (laughs) And the Hasid notices and he isn't pained by it and he rejoices in having achieved equanimity. And I think what's amazing about the stories from in this context is what that Hasid had achieved was he just didn't care about that guy's respect. Do you know what I mean? There's like a physical sensation happening, which is this like warmish liquid that <laughs> was falling on him, which all of us are like, Wah! right? <laughs> Terrible. But he knows the whole thing is about that guy trying to show disdain towards him. He knows what it's about. And he's like, what do I care? And it's just like, why is that important? Why is that relevant what that person thinks or he's being an idiot? And that's what he says. He says, what do I care what that idiot thinks, literally, in the text, right? You call them a defect. It's like, it's not relevant to me. And when he notices his own sense of that, there's liberation, right? Liberation is not like, it's great, I wish I'd be peed on, you know? <laughs> the liberation is just the sense of, you know, it doesn't really matter. This isn't really what's important to me. And there's freedom in that experience. So what would it feel like? I mean, can you imagine a time when you feel like you were sort of not seen or disrespected? And what would it feel like if you really didn't care, not in a cold way, in a way of rejoicing, like you just recognized it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. That person is crazy in some way. In some way they're crazy, right? They're only acting out of their own craziness. And it's got nothing to do with me. In some ways, I mean, we can say these things the same way, ten different ways. In some ways, it's just about not taking it personally. No, it's not about me. One of the most interesting challenges I've had in working with this so one of my teachers said to me, well, are you willing to be just a garden variety human being? <laughs> you know? Like, you're so invested in being excellent and doing this well and doing that well. What if you're just mediocre? <laughs> you know, would that be okay? What if you were just garden variety, right? You're shaking your head. You're like, no. <laughs> that wouldn't be okay. Definitely not. But it's actually, it's, it's part of the work. Is like, it's okay to just be a garden variety human being. I feel the tension in myself as I say it, you know? So interesting. Because of course we've all been told, like, no, that's not okay. You're supposed to be whatever you're supposed to be. Excellent, excel, do this great, be superlative in that, whatever it is, right? And... And we're somehow not okay, right? We're not okay if we're just garden variety, right? My life is worthless. I'm not special. I'm somehow inadequate, right? Would it be okay to give up the need to be special, 
to give up the need to be special. Now that doesn't mean giving up effort or even striving or even the commitment sometimes to excellence. The question is where is that commitment coming from? Right? Is the commitment coming from I need to be excellent? I need to not be mediocre because somehow if I don't do that I'm not okay. I'm not acceptable. Or are we doing it to be an Ebed Hashem? To be a servant of God? Not for ourselves but just to in a sense to give ourselves over to the divine. There's a kind of striving we can do which is a kind of surrender actually. It's not effort, it's not self-will, it's not control, right? It's a surrendering to who we are. When we surrender most fully to who we are, when we surrender to being made in the image of God, to being Vitalim Elohim, then we just sort of do the best we can in a much easier, natural way, without the tension because we think our self-worth is somehow on the line, right? There's a much more open way that we can just open to the possibility of accomplishment and the possibility of failure. It's being in a partnership with God. I told that story a few weeks ago, I don't know how many of you were here, about uh, those folks, the bartender and the drug addict, taking on this partnership with God. For some reason, for me, that story really conveys it. It's about surrendering the illusion of being in control, right? And saying, okay, I'm in partnership with you. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do my part. It's not that there's no effort involved. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do my part. But I'm not going to be... I'm not going to have the illusion that it's all up to me. And I'm not going to be tied up, attached the result, right? I'm going to act in a way which is much more open. It's really, really hard, I think, to really integrate that and do it. It's really, really hard. No, it's really hard for me. It's really good to remind myself sometimes. It's like, what if I was just mediocre? You know? What if I was just mediocre? It's actually okay. Okay. And we can use whatever strategies help us to recognize the okayness of it. Sometimes we can't step out of the game. And it's helpful for me to recognize, like, Debbie would still love me, even if I was mediocre. Right? Like, it wouldn't matter. She doesn't really care how much I accomplish or where I, you know, whatever. <laughs> Only enough food to eat, you know, we're all going to do. Like, she's still going to love me. It's going to be okay. You know, Ella. Definitely doesn't care how much I <laughs> <laughs> <You know>? Definitely. <laughs> she cares if I'm around, if I play with her, if I give her juice and milk, you know. <laughs> we come to recognize that anxiety, my teacher Amita said, is in direct proportion to ego. Directly proportionate, right? Directly relational. The extent you have anxiety, the extent your ego is active and feeling attachment to something. 
Right? It's when something has to happen, so there's anxiety about it not happening. And so can we just remind ourselves every morning to make ourselves a servant and a partner with God? To come into our work in the world from the place of love, love of God, love of the world. Not from the place of the desperate need to be something because otherwise we won't be accepted. But it's so hard. It's still so hard. You know, I can say it so many times and I do it and it's a process that works and it's so hard to see it. So sometimes it's helpful to ask the question, very simple question. I'm looking for respect or I'm looking for acknowledgement or I'm looking to be seen or to be accepted. Who is it that gets that respect? You know the question, well, who is it that gets that respect? Who gets accepted? Who gets acknowledged? Like, what really gets it? What gets the respect? Because what is it about me that could actually be respected or disrespected? In question. It's like, does it even make sense to talk about things that way? Like, let's say it's that I'm not smart enough. Am I my brain? Am I my intellect? So I'm going to suggest no. Right? Not my intellect. That's not who I am. Or I'm not accomplished enough. Am, am I my accomplishments? No. One of the things that happen, they're out there in the world. Thoughts and intellect is something that happened. Even am I good enough? Am I my virtue? I'm not even my virtue. You know, these various dispositions in me. None of those things are me. Is my body me? Am I, am I ugly? You know, that's not me either. You can search all over every piece of yourself and you won't find you anywhere. There's a whole other larger discussion which we, you know, have in bits and pieces and you probably have more extensively about the nature of ourself. But we can search the whole self and we'll never find it. Which means we can't actually be disrespected. It's a sort of funny way to look at it. (laughs) But whatever piece of us is being attacked or not accepted or not acknowledged, it's not us. Just some piece of this various things which are happening in this mind, body, space, time thing right here, which I call James, right? But it's not me. But we hurt when we take it personally, right? We feel attacked, we feel threatened, we feel it's somehow about who we actually are. Somehow threatens our safe sense of safety and security. But who we really are, what we really are, cannot be threatened. Say it again, what we really are cannot be threatened. Because it is vast as the universe and as open as the sky. And we touch that, in meditation sometimes we touch that. It's that vast spaciousness. And that's who we really are. We are that vast spaciousness. And it can't be harmed. Right? You can shoot an arrow through the sky. It doesn't hurt the sky. Right? <laughs> the sky doesn't mind. 
can't actually do anything to space or you can't do anything to emptiness. So we try to let go of this need, this desperate need to be seen. And this letting go isn't about ripping it away. Sometimes we can do that, and that's okay, sometimes we can do it. But mostly it's about gently softening and softening and softening. So those, the hard edge of that need is just softened and softened and melted away, like water running over a rock. And we do things, sort of whatever we can, to challenge sometimes that sense of need. You know, the Kalis Garebi was famous for doing his group for doing somersaults in the street. And the idea was like, I look like an idiot, you know? <laughs> if I already look like an idiot, then maybe I won't worry about this respect thing so much, right? Or the Stoics were known as the, like the doggy philosophers, right? Because they... Uh, they would like, you know, bark at people and wear rags and right, these other things. It's like, clearly not worried about self-respect, right? How much of an idiot can I make myself look like? And there's a, you know, it's a liberation. It's like the liberation that I was before when I failed out of my first master's at Oxford, you know. My mom failed too. Yeah. <laughs> so it was totally liberating, actually. It was like actually one of the best things I've ever done. You know, I wouldn't have said at the time, but like... It was like, oh, I failed. Okay, I failed. That's it. Like, I've done that. I didn't fall apart. I was still okay. I wasn't thrown out of the house. All my friends didn't reject me. You know, like, whatever the fantasies were about all the terrible things that were going to happen if I failed, didn't happen. Right? It's actually okay. Again, it's about that giving up hope. The hope that I'm really going to get finally what I want. Trungpa Rinpoche says again in his book Spiritual Materialism. The moment you give up hope, the person turns up. The spiritual path works in this way. It's a matter of wearing out all expectations. Patience is necessary. I find it so hard wearing out all expectations. But it's possible when I can taste the liberation in it, how freeing it would be to just give up hope, to just give up expectations. Like it says right at the door to hell in the inferno, abandon hope all ye who enter here. Actually, it's the door to heaven. The door to heaven. We just give up that expectation, that wanting, that needing for things to be different. So we're not going to finish with this today. We're going to continue with the next time. We're going to talk, talk for a little bit more. And what's so challenging about this? That there's a way sometimes that we can kind of coast in the practice. So we can practice and we're doing it, but we're not willing to let it really challenge us and really change us. We're not willing to let it really demand of us. 
because we don't really want to give anything up to really take risks to really be ready to be fearless we don't want to see the real demands this wisdom makes on us to examine ourselves to open to our fear but the practice is on the one hand gentle and on the one hand demands a radical shift Trungpa Rinpoche says again the point of meditation is not merely to be an honest or good person in the conventional sense trying only to maintain our security I would say in my own experience is based, the point of meditation is not to be good boys and girls <laughs> right we're very caught up in being good boys and girls it's not the point we must begin to become compassionate and wise in the fundamental sense open and relating to the world as it is there's something way beyond being good boys and girls and in fact often it means we're not such good boys and girls we do things which are inappropriate we make people upset we don't respond in the ways people want us to we shake things up that's the real kind of radical courageous compassion that the practice calls for because being good boys and girls is safe and real compassion isn't willingness to open to the maelstrom of fear and uncertainty inside of us that to step out of the game to open takes a kind of moment of radical bravery there's real courage there's a place of the warrior in this practice it's like the Pizetzner says when you go out to war against your enemy there's a way in which you need to be a warrior and it's a warrior of compassion who sees everything which is arising and is willing to rip open his heart or her heart and let it all in and in that place of the open heart there's a different kind of response which is possible a response which is no longer dictated by fear and by needing to have approval and by needing to do what's acceptable and by needing to fulfill other people's expectations there's an ability to act in a way which we can touch at times which is clear and open and bright and strong and full of freedom. So we're going to pause there for today.
we're going to continue next time to explore this theme. And as normal now, we'll open it up for uh, questions, thoughts, reflections, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Or anxiety is proportional to ego. Okay. That way. Right, right. Anxiety is proportional to ego. Yeah. Yeah, sure. The experience of anxiety. It's actually a very complicated experience anxiety. On the one hand, the experience of anxiety is the experience of fear, right? Which is wanting something to happen and the fear that it's not going to happen. Let's say in our example here, wanting to be accepted or wanting to succeed in something and the fear that it's not going to succeed. And that, of course, is directly related to ego. That is, that fear only exists to the extent we're attached to that result. And that's the difference between put it on the other side. When it doesn't happen, it's the difference between bitterness and grief or loss. Right? It's not about not having desire. Right? Because you can have, it's like, yes, I want that to happen. I really want that to happen. And often, in fact, because of the anxiety and attachment, we won't even admit to others, and sometimes even to ourselves, that we really want that thing to happen. But when there's more open, we can be really honest with the desire. It's like, oh yeah, I really want that. I really want that to happen. And we can be sad when it doesn't happen. We can be sad. But it's not bitter. It's not tight. There isn't resentment around it not happening. The other aspect of anxiety, I'll say at least in my experience, there's sort of what I might call, I don't know, true anxiety, I don't know if that's the phrase, but the first thing I described, which is actually, it's related somehow inherently to fear. But in my experience, anxiety can also be a masking emotion. That is, it's somehow, some of us have learned, I learned, that it was somehow acceptable to feel anxiety, and it wasn't acceptable to feel other things, like rage, or... Um, I don't know, no other examples coming to mind, but right, other things you weren't allowed to feel. And so anxiety covers over. And yet again, it's actually still sort of primary anxiety, which is it's the fear and resistance to feeling that experience. The fear and resistance to feeling, let's say, my anger and rage. Didn't want to feel my rage, right? Not acceptable to be angry. Not acceptable. So because it's not acceptable, because it's so threatening to my sense of self to feel rage. So anxiety is going to come in, so I don't have to feel the rage. Right? And so anxiety, again, is trying to protect my ego. It's exactly proportional to the extent that my ego needs to be protected from the anger, to that extent the anxiety is going to be present. And to the extent my ego doesn't need to protect it anymore, because it's like, oh yeah, anger, normal human emotion, everybody experiences it, why wouldn't I experience it, right? <laughs> and then I can totally open to that, no need for anxiety anymore. Right? It's not present anymore. 
So I can't help but to think that um, some of the things that you were talking about tonight seem radically opposed to my understanding of a Jewish perspective in this world. Like right? guilt? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I was kidding. I was kidding. Of social action, for example, yeah. of, of that we as Jews, we imagine the world as we want it to be, we pray for the world as we want it to be, and then in we work to make the world as we want it to be. Yeah. And that seems diametrically opposed to the idea of acceptance of the world as is. Because if we accept the world as is, then we have essentially bought into a, a status quo arrangement. The world is as it is, regardless of whether or not I'm going to have any effect on it. And I see injustice in this world, and I'm just going to accept that. Okay, great question. Um, and uh, I don't think there's any tension there at all. In fact, I'd say the opposite. The difference is, to refer back to what I talked in the talk, the difference is healing the world as a servant of God or healing the world as an independent self who is, has to heal the world not because the world needs it, right? But because it's somehow personal, Right? If I don't do it, I'll feel, and I was just joking when I said it before, but right? I'll experience guilt. I somehow won't be the person I'm supposed to be. I won't be accepted, etc. And I'll, I'll, I'll make this very concrete, okay? Which is my experience in the Jewish world and worlds in general, in social justice and political activism. Which is that you can work for a healed, loving world from a place of hatred and striving. And I, it happens, right? It happens all the time. It's unfortunate. And that's because people are working from that place of ego. It's because they're setting up enemies, right? And you can work for healing and justice in the world from a place of being a servant of God. And there's no less impetus and force behind their work. There's no less effort. But there's a different kind of effort. On the one hand, in my experience, when I was wrong with it, is that there could be a kind of neurotic effort. It's an effort which is tight and violent in a certain way, aggressive, um, which sets up them and us, which makes enemies, um, and which is... is closed. It's closed. It's not open. You can't see actually fully the situation. You can't even see fully often. My feeling is like when I get stuck in it, all of a sudden my mind is closed off. I can't even hear ideas from the other side or ideas that might be not exactly the ideas I'm having at the moment. And I respond with anger. Now, if you notice yourself responding with anger to an idea, it's an interesting kind of you know, bell to notice, like, oh, that's interesting, right? She's an idea out there. I'm angry about it. Like, what exactly is the anger there? On the other hand, you can work with openness, and there can be a motivation which is love, which is compassion, which is the desire to heal. It can be deeply, deeply motivating, right? There can be tremendous impetus and tremendous, tremendous effort, but there's no illusion of control. 
You don't think you're in control. You don't think you can figure out and do it all yourself. You can do everything you can do. And then it's also in God's hands. And so there is that sense there of acknowledging, which I just think is the truth, that it's not all in our control. We can make tremendous effort, and we should make tremendous effort. But no matter how much effort we make, we can't make things turn out the way we want them to. We'll make tremendous effort. We'll do everything we can, and still often things will not turn out the way we want them to. And I don't just mean this in like, blase, I won't get the ice cream I want. In terrible, awful ways, things won't turn out the way I want them to. You know, the sense of people will starve and people will die and people, you know, I'm not trying to minimize it. But it, it's the fact of the world. It doesn't, for me, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't help me at all to live in the illusion that I can make everything if I just tried hard enough or did enough of something of something, I could make everything turn out the way I wanted it to. It's just not true. And so I want to try with tremendous passion and commitment and love. But as we talked about before, as a servant of God, as a partner with God, rather than an independent entity where it's all up to me. Because in my experience, that's where tension and anger and opposition and hatred get created versus the other side where it happens from love and openness. Um, so what if you feel like you are acting in a place that's beneficial to me, let's say, or that I'm doing this out of respect? Are you saying that you shouldn't act on it? No. What, and what if I can't transition it to say that I'm doing it for Hashem? Ah, this is a good question, which is, what happens before we're enlightened? Right? <laughs> which is like, well, we try and live our lives the best we can, right? I would say, like, it's not a problem to say, oh, I can see, again, it depends on the situation, so, and it depends on what you're doing. It's just good to notice. It's like, oh, I'm doing this action. I can notice that I'm acting from a place of actually kind of ego. I can notice that. Then you may say something like, well, I'm acting from a place of ego, and there's no other good reason to do this action, so I'm not going to do it. You might say, I'm acting from a place of ego. I know this is really still going to help this person. So even though I can't act from the best place possible, with the, just trying to be self-aware, I'm going to do that action, because that's the best thing to do at the moment. Right? It doesn't mean like we stop acting in the world or whatever until only when we eradicate the ego, then we will do something in the world. Because <laughs> then you'll be waiting a long time. You know? <laughs> right? So, right, so we do the best we can. I think the most important thing is, you know, can we just try to cultivate the awareness of it? Because as we do that, we can start to notice, oh, like actually often there's a little more complexity there. Like there's ego acting, and we can touch. There is actually some natural compassion there acting as well. And maybe it's not even about, should I do this or not? Or maybe it's about, can I pause and try to touch the compassion and try to just have the intention to act from that place rather than from the place of the ego? It's also, or out of the piece of that, is that intention is important. Like, even if you can notice, I'm acting from ego right now. You know what I mean? You can just say, okay, I'm about to do this action. If you can notice and say, my intention, I'm setting the intention that made this come from a place of compassion. And that's actually helpful. Even if you don't reach it right then. You know, it's not about like being there already. It's just like noticing and saying, okay, I'm setting the intention just to say it to yourself that this is going to come from compassion. And just setting that intention over and over again can actually start to cultivate that ability within you. So then when you take those risks... Which risks? 
The risks of not caring. The risks of not caring. Well, Can you answer the question wrong? again? Isn't it like I'm not, not understanding. Aren't you going for everything? Um, Do you mean not caring about whether people are going to yeah. respect me? Yeah, exactly. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, whatever you can. <laughs> Uh, in my experience, it's really hard to do. And so you do it as much as possible and you try to do it. Again, I'm talking about how it's worked for me. It's helped for me if I can set concrete goals for how to do it. Right? Sometimes it gets thrust on you, like you fail at something. So that can be a wonderful opportunity to sort of explore. Oh, how does this feel? It's like, how does this feel to have not done this? Um, but... I'll give an example. One issue for me about respect and acknowledgement was getting respect and acknowledgement from uh, you know, figures that were in some way sort of above me, like teachers, bosses, those kinds of figures, okay? So that was an issue I was working on, right? So I tried to make a commitment when something came up, like some issue which I thought was not being addressed or needed to be clear about or something, to prepare myself for it and go and talk to and confront that person about it. Even though the fear of that for me, that's the great fear, was like I was going to be rejected, not respected, fired, whatever, right? <laughs> um, so there had to be some wisdom around that, right? I had to do it in a wise way, and there were certain things that were important, like I couldn't lose my job, you know? <laughs> so I didn't want to be fired, okay. right? I needed the money. But there was the work before, and I was like, okay, I can notice this. I can notice it's around this issue of needing respect. I can notice that there may be a small rational fear about losing my job, but there's a huge irrational part about being rejected or not loved or not respected or whatever it is. And if I can be actually clear and, and take my own responsibility and be compassionate myself, then it can be okay. I can come in and I can raise these things and I can say them clearly and it can be heard because I'm coming from that place of clarity. You know, that's like one example. So in that concrete example, because I knew it was an issue, I would try to be aware of those issues. I would try to bring them up. And then I would actually prepare myself for the meeting, which is a major source of anxiety for me. Right? So like actually have a strategy for how do I prepare to work on this particular issue that I'm working on. That's one way to do it. Other times you may just see, I'll say another way that I, I work on it, is um, this class. So in this class, I try to, one of my intentions is, can I be as honest as possible, right? I feel like my honesty of my teachers has helped me. And the only way I can really teach truly is if I teach from a place of honesty. So I'm going to be as honest as possible. So I say all kinds of things here. <laughs> Even things that, you know, might be embarrassing or shameful or feel like they wouldn't get me respect or things about like, even though I've been meditating for this all the time, I'm still dealing with this issue or I'm still failing around here or whatever it is, right? So when I started teaching this here, I sent that as a, as a conscious intention, which I still try to keep, which is, okay, so how honest can I be? And every time I notice myself starting to write something, I'm being like, should I write that? It's like, yes, I should write that, right? Okay, can I just write that? Because that's actually what's happening. It's not going to help anybody if I'm like pretending that something else is happening, right? 
So again, like, can I set some concrete ways? And then as you do that, there's a little more openness in the day-to-day elements as well. But for me, it really does help. I've mentioned this before. I try to work on, I can't work on everything at once. So I try to have particular goals that I'm working on over a month, two months, two weeks, whatever it is, you know, in some particular technique or or space that I'm going to try to be aware of that thing coming up in. Otherwise, it's just like it's everything. And for me, that gets too much. You know, it's sort of overwhelming. Uh, so we're going to pause here. Thank you, everybody, very much. As normal, the class is by donation. Please give generously. Um, I'm going to run out, but Jonathan will still collect the money after I'm gone, if you have any chance to give. And I'll see you all next week.